0: turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We'll be in Colossians chapter 1 verses 21 through 23 this morning as we continue through this series. You know, it's, it's hard to comprehend just how vast our universe is and just how small we are in comparison to it. Perhaps you've seen animations or videos that help depict this where they start with a view of our planet and then it zooms out more and more and more and more until the earth goes to just a small speck and then it's completely gone. And, and then you see the galaxy that we're in and then that's just a small speck amongst a cluster of galaxies. And that cluster of galaxies is just one of many clusters of galaxies. And it is incomprehensible that, that in such a vast universe, we are just the, the smallest, most infinitesimal speck. perhaps, If you want to feel perhaps even more insignificant, think about just how small we are in comparison to just this planet, let alone the universe. Right, when Google Earth first came out, I had so much fun with that. Right, If you've been there, you, you can spin the globe. You can, you can look at any portion of the planet, all the satellite imagery. In fact, you can zoom out, and the Earth is about this big. And then you just type in your address, and it goes right to your, you can see the roof of your house and, and your car. And you, there you are watering your flowers out on the front lawn. It's kind of creepy, but it's also really cool. Right? And you see, wow. I am so small. I'm so insignificant in comparison to the vastness of the universe. Our passage today functions in a similar way. It's connected to what we saw previously in verse 15 going through verse 20, where Christ is preeminent over all creation. He's the creator of all things, visible and invisible. He created this universe. And then the passage zooms in to his preeminence over the church that he is the head of the church. And in our passage today, it zooms in even more, and it zooms in on you, that you are not too insignificant and small to escape the work of Christ. In fact, what he is doing in the hearts of mankind is the center point of his work. Despite the vastness of the universe, his focus, his attention is on his church, his people, on this little speck in the vastness of the universe. There's a famous picture, go look it up sometime, it's called the pale blue dot. Pale blue dot is a famous picture of taken from a satellite far away from Earth, so far that the Earth itself is represented by its tiny, tiny speck in in a ray of light. And to think that in that tiny speck, all the attention, all the redemptive work of Jesus Christ was focused. He was focused on saving us. As we look at our passage, verse 21 through 23, as I mentioned, is a continuation of the previous verses. Christ is preeminent, and then he zooms closer and closer until he reaches our very hearts. The theology of verses 15 through 20 are now applied to us personally. Because Christ is preeminent over all things, he is preeminent over our hearts. His mission, coming to earth, was to, as we read in verse 20, reconcile all things to himself, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this comprehensive absolute statement, reconciling all things to himself, includes your soul. If he is to reconcile all things in heaven and earth, that would include the hearts of you and me, which implies our hearts need reconciliation. This passage concludes... Paul's opening address to the Colossian church, and it repeats much of what we saw at the beginning, that you have received this gospel and it has changed everything. You have been reconciled. Don't forget it. Don't move past it. So look with me in Colossians chapter 1. Let's read together in verse 21, and I'll read down through verse 23. He says, And you who were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through his death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, not being moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you guide us this morning as we look at this glorious truth in this passage, that we would never get over the beauty of the gospel and how it reaches our hearts Guide us as we look in your word this morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. What Paul proclaims in these three short verses is what the Colossian church needs in this very moment. The presence of false teaching, as we've repeatedly mentioned, produces this instability and uncertainty, a lack of confidence. These alternative gospels, or perhaps we could call them gospel improvements, leave us wondering, is there more? am i missing out am i coming up short and so paul calls on the colossian believers for gospel stability he wants the church to be stable in gospel truths if you look at the language of verse 3 of verse 23 in our passage that we are to be grounded and settled or stable and steadfast or established and firm If this describes you, if you are grounded and settled in the gospel, if you are stable and steadfast in the gospel, you will not be vulnerable to the subtle and deceitful lies that so easily creep into the church at every turn. In the book of Ephesians, Paul describes the threat of false teaching on unstable souls as those who are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Are you easily moved away from your confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you easily duped by falsehood? At one time or another in our lives, our gullibility has gotten the best of us, hasn't it? I remember one time my friend came up to me and said, do you know that if you say the word, if you say green beans really slowly, or no, gullibility really slowly, it sounds like green beans. So, a No, it doesn't. Oh, you got me, right? <laughs> Some of you were trying it. I know you were. We've all been gullible. It's gotten the best of us. Whether it, perhaps we mistake a satirical article for a real news story, or we believe unfounded conspiracy theories, it's, it's easy for us to pray, fall prey to falsehood. Why is it so easy for us to believe lies? Well, there's a multitude of reasons. Maybe Perhaps sometimes we believe things just based on what we find attractive. If you ever believed something because you simply want it to be true? Or sometimes we believe things based off what we suspect, our suspicions. If you ever believed something as fact simply because, you know what, I could just see that being true about that person, about that thing? And the same thing happens in our spiritual lives. We digest wrong teachings about Jesus, wrong teachings about Christianity, due to the fact that we find it attractive, we like it or perhaps it confirms our suspicions. The early church father, Augustine, said this, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you like, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. And that's exactly what we often do with our faith sometimes. So how do we have gospel stability in such an unstable world? This is what the Colossians needed to hear. They were in the midst of instability. And Paul calls them to gospel stability, and I want to call us to the same thing. And in this passage, he, he points to two very uh, simple truths. If you want to stay stable in the gospel, remember the gospel and continue in the gospel. Remember the gospel and continue in the gospel. Let's see how he walks through this in our passage today. Remember the gospel. Paul wants to be sure that the Colossians see the connection between Christ's preeminence and their own lives, that Jesus didn't just reconcile all things, he reconciled you. He made peace by the blood of the cross, verse 20, and he reconciled you, that this gospel has completely changed everything, and he calls the Colossians to remember that. He calls them to remember three things. Remember your former hostility. The main sentence in this paragraph, if you were to take out kind of the the clauses that interrupt it, it's you, he has now reconciled. You have been reconciled is the main idea. And he's sure to insert this parenthesis describing us, specifically describing us before Jesus reconciled. It says, you that were sometime alienated, which sometime means formerly, in past, you were once alienated. He's describing the former character and conduct of the Colossians. And how are the Colossians described in their past life? He gives us three descriptions. You were once alienated, hostile in mind, or enemies in your mind, doing evil deeds. We often tell ourselves, apart from Christ, I'm just fine. I'm a good person but the Bible confronts us and reveals to us that we really, what we really are, or if you're a Christian this morning, hopefully what you used to be. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know the Bible is right about us. Let's look at these descriptions. As we're called to remember our former hostility, and hopefully as we walk through these former descriptions of us, we rejoice in the gospel all the more. He says that we were once alienated. The Bible describes us as excluded or estranged. What, is, what, what are we alienated from exactly? Well, the closest parallel that we find for the same word is in Ephesians 4, verse 18, where we read this, that they, speaking of unbelievers, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So what are we alienated from in Colossians 1.21? We're, we're alienated from the life of God. We're, we're alienated from God himself. God is the source of all life, but we in our sin are completely cut off from that. We're separated. We're alienated. We're estranged. We have no claim to his blessings. Well, does this, does this make us a victim? No, because we discover that this alienation is because of our own sinful mind. What's the next descriptive word? That we are hostile in mind. Again, that parallel passage we saw in Ephesians chapter 4 makes this connection all the more clear that we are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us. And that ignorance that is in us is due to our own hardness of heart. And so Colossians sums up this mindset as hostility, An enmity, in and of yourself, apart from the reconciliation of Christ, you and God stand as enemies against each other. And that's why we are alienated. That's why we are estranged. That in our souls, we we possess an an innate and deep-seated resistance to God. That we are hostile toward Him. We can see this evidenced at a higher level, even just in our culture. There's a greater hostility against the name of Jesus than there is against any prophet or false god in this world. It's Christ's name that becomes a cuss word. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, Jesus. The world sees tolerance toward other religions as a virtue, but they see Christianity as a danger. But this hostility, we can call out the hostility in our culture against Christ, against Christianity, and neglect to see the hostility of our own minds. We stand in opposition, apart from Christ, to our Creator. And consequently, God stands in opposition to us. Friend, if you're here without a knowledge of Jesus Christ, if you have not placed your faith in Him alone, do you know that you stand as an enemy of God? We like to tell ourselves, we're all God's children. We're all all on the same path, right? But Christ says no. If you have not believed in my son, you stand as an enemy because you are hostile in your mind. And what does this result in, in our passage? That we have hostility of mind showing itself by doing evil deeds. This is set up as a consequence or evidence of a hostile mind. We're hostile in mind, resulting in doing evil deeds where do our evil actions and our selfishness and our pride flow from? From a mind that is standing in opposition to the creator. And it's in our sinful and selfish actions that the hostility of our mind is made evident. You may object and say, no, not me. I know God. I, we're on good terms. I have a relationship with him. But listen to how Paul describes the enemies of God in this way in Titus chapter 1, verse 16, where he says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. We can say, I know God, but then when we look at our lives and we see our selfishness and our pride, we deny the fact that we know God. We are doing evil deeds, which is evidence of a hostile mind. And as a result, we are alienated from God. Unless you think I'm standing up here calling out all you sinners out there, (laughs) remember that I am included in this description, just as the Colossians were included in this description. He says, you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. If you are here this morning as a non-believer and you ask, well, what's the difference between me and you? My answer would be the only difference between me and you is the death of Jesus Christ on my behalf, that he has reconciled me. I have done nothing but reject and rebel against him. And Paul exhorts the church, remember your former hostility, That was you, he tells the Colossian church. But then he calls on them to remember his work of reconciliation. And now we get to turn to the glorious reality of the gospel. The first half of verse 22, you, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You who were once this are now reconciled. And Paul loves to contrast our past lives with our life in Christ. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 5.8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Or as we all know, as Isaac Watts writes in Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. The seriousness of our enmity highlights the glorious grace of the gospel even more. If we are hostile against God, then it is reconciliation that we need. Peace between God and man. If you notice that work of reconciliation, often in our human relationships, reconciliation goes both ways, right? If there is uh, two people that are at odds with one another, reconciliation requires humility and forgiveness on both ends. But here in this passage, we see God reconciles us. I did not reconcile myself to God. He reconciled me. And how did He accomplish it? We see the answer in two descriptive phrases in this verse number one, He did it in the body of His flesh. And number two, He did it by His death. Reconciliation was accomplished through the incarnation and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. If you look back up in verse 20 of this same chapter, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 19 says, In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses Against him. We see this work of reconciliation spelled out in greater detail if you actually look ahead in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. We'll obviously get to this passage in more detail in our series, but it's worth mentioning here. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. If you stand as an enemy of God, if you're hostile against him, there is only one way for you to be reconciled to your creator, and that is for the Holy Son of God, Jesus Christ, to enter humanity as a human, fully God and fully man, to serve and suffer as a lowly servant, and then to die in our place. And when his blood was shed on the cross as a perfect sacrifice, your evil deeds that result from your hostile mind were nailed to the cross. And he became sin for you and took your punishment. And by his death on the cross, he eliminated the source of hostility. He made peace by the blood of his cross. And so that God, who once called you his enemy and you called him your enemy, can embrace you as family. You can be reconciled to God through Christ and his death. Christian, don't forget what Christ did for you on that cross. Why would you flirt with worldviews and ways of thinking that diminishes the reconciling work of Christ? Non-believer, This is what Jesus offers you. You cannot reconcile yourself, but he has made a way for you to be reconciled if you will but repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Remember his work of reconciliation. But it does not stop there. He continues and calls us to remember God's future purpose for us in this reconciliation. He points to the divine purpose for your salvation. Yes, God removed your sin, but he's not done with you. Look with me again in verse 22, that he reconciled you for a purpose. And what is that purpose? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Our salvation includes not just our redemption, but also our sanctification and one day our glorification. And this emphasis on past, present, and future reveals the complete sufficiency of the gospel. When he came to save you, he left nothing out. He he takes care of your problem through the gospel, but then he changes your very heart. He changes your future destination. If you are a child of God, if he has reconciled you to himself, then he has big plans for you. The sufficiency of the gospel reveals the futility of everything else. Remember what you have in him. Remember, the call of the false teachers was twofold. In the Judaistic element, you should be doing more. In the mystical Gnostic element, you could be experiencing more. And these calls lose all their persuasiveness when we remember that the of the complete sufficiency of the gospel, when they seek to pull us aside, to draw us in, we say, no thank you, I'm all set, I have Christ. Let's consider this future purpose, three descriptive words. Holy, he is going to present us pure, clean. He's going to present us blameless, this word carries the idea of without blemish, spotless. He's going to present us above reproach, unblameable, free from accusation. How could an enemy of God be described using such terms? Remember what we were described in, in how we were described in verse 21. We were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, And now he presents us holy, blameless, and above reproach. How is that possible? Only the blood of Jesus Christ makes it possible. He takes an unclean, impure heart and makes it holy. He takes defiled and blemished souls and makes them spotless. He takes guilty sinners who, have, who deserve every accusation the devil throws at us and makes us innocent, free from all accusation. And because of Christ, we will one day be presented holy, blameless, and above reproach. He will present us before the Father like a pure bride as we read in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25-27. We read that he died for the church so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What a gospel that we have. Why would we ever forfeit a gift like this? Why would we ever find satisfaction in human tradition? in regulations, in severe treatment of the body? Why would we find self-made religion attractive when we have this gospel? So he calls us to remember it. And if you're lost, if you don't know him, believe it. Paul wants something more for the Colossians. He doesn't want them to just remember the gospel He wants them to continue in the gospel. In the face of competing ideas, don't forsake this truth you've been given, he tells them. And we see the wonderful truths of the gospel in verses 21 through 22. And then in verse 23, we read these words. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you've heard, of which which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister." And so secondly, not only remember the gospel, but continue in the gospel. Verse 23 begins with a conditional statement. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith. And if we connect it with the previous context, it says, if God will present you wholly blameless and above reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith. And this word continue means to persevere. The faith he's talking about is the faith of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. This conditional clause is pointing to the importance of persevering in the gospel, to stand firm in the gospel, not to waver from it. We find these conditional statements all throughout the New Testament. And oftentimes it might leave some wondering if we're presented with the possibility of losing our salvation. Does it depend on us to stay saved? Or does it depend on God to keep us saved? Saved? It's an important question. I think it's worth slowing down and considering together. The conditional construction that verse 23 begins with, if indeed, often connotes confidence and actually could be translated since I'm sure. We see the same Greek construction elsewhere, and you might see it translated in other parts of the Bible as assuming in your English Bible. For example, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, number two, assuming, same conditional, if indeed, assuming you've heard, the true, heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. He uses it again in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 21, where he says he, taught, he describes the lawless deeds of the wicked and says, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming, same conditional construction, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth Is in Jesus. So when Paul says, if indeed you continue in the gospel, is he saying that in terms of of an uncertainty about their faith or a certainty? I think he's pointing to a certainty of their faith. In fact, if you look ahead to Colossians chapter 2, verse 5, we see this certainty from Paul himself, where he says, For though I am absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. If we read our passage this morning with that understanding in mind, we might interpret it as saying something like this, that he will present you blameless, assuming you have genuine faith, the type that will persevere and continue. We know from scripture that there is a type of faith that is not saving faith. James tells us that the demons also believe and they tremble. Are they saved? I don't think so. The parable of the sower points to a type of faith, a type of belief that is not saving faith. It is only the seed falling on good ground that produces roots in fruit. Saving faith, in short, is persevering faith. But despite the fact that Paul shows a confidence that the Colossians have a genuine, enduring faith, we should not completely write off the conditional phrase as if the conditional phrase is not there. There is an exhortation here for us. What's the exhortation? Continue. Persevere. Be steadfast. Don't forsake the gospel. In other words, it was foolish and naive of us to shrug our shoulders and say, well, if I've got the real deal, I'm in. No need for me to be vigilant, to be steadfast, to stand firm in the gospel. If I'm in, I'm in. If I'm out, I'm out. Right? That's not how the Bible describes our Christian life. That's not how the Bible describes saving faith. And two important doctrines factor into our discussion here. The doctrine of eternal security and the doctrine of perseverance. Both doctrines speak to an act of God on behalf of the Christian. God secures us. When we are reconciled to himself, we are his forever. Eternal security, we might say, is what salvation looks like from the viewpoint of heaven, that he is holding on to us. God knows who are his, and he will keep us secure Those who have been brought to him, he will never cast out. But when you take that same reality, that same salvation, that looks like eternal security from heaven's viewpoint, and you look at that same truth, that same salvation from the viewpoint of everyday life, what does it look like from that perspective? It looks like perseverance. It looks like a heart that continues in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. We have no problem with this, with this complexity in terms of our salvation. That conversion, we say, is, a, is completely an act of God from beginning to end. We do not save ourselves. We don't meet him halfway. He saves us. It's his work. Yet we still point to our responsibility to respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. And In the same way, the Christian's faith in life is completely an act of God from beginning to end. He will hold us fast. And yet we still point to our responsibility to endure and continue in the gospel. And so if a preacher of the gospel is going to exhort people toward genuine faith, will he point them toward eternal security or to perseverance? He'll point them to perseverance. Because I as a pastor do not have a heavenly perspective to see who is genuinely saved and who is not. That's God's viewpoint. But I do know that those who are in Christ are those who persevere by the grace of God alone. That if a professing believer is being threatened with false teaching, what instruction would be the most beneficial to him at that moment? Would it be, don't worry if you're his child, you've got nothing to worry about? Or would it be, don't forsake the truth of the gospel, stand firm in it, don't reject it, continue in the faith? The truth of eternal security shows itself practically in the perseverance of the believers. And so Paul exhorts the church, persevere, continue, don't give up what you have. And such exhortations do not contradict the truth of eternal security, they reinforce it. Continue in the gospel. He calls us to continue in the stability of gospel hope. Paul describes for us the characteristic of a Christian who is continuing in the faith, and he describes it in both positive and negative senses. We are to be grounded and settled, or stable and steadfast. This speaks to the level of our conviction, our confidence, that our gospel is sufficient and in authorita- and the authoritative answer to life. In a negative sense, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Don't waver. Don't move away from its truth. When it comes to your confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ, his reconciliation on your behalf, what does it take for you to flinch, to waver? Continuing in the gospel really is motivated by a stable confidence in the gospel. You will not continue with it if you're not confident in it. How did the martyrs of old stand firm and unflinching in the face of horrible persecution? How did they hold to their faith when compelled to renounce it? How did Martin Luther stand before the Catholic Church and say, here I stand, I can do no other? It's because they were stable and steadfast in the gospel. They weren't shifting. They weren't budging. But this confidence is not sourced in ourselves. It comes from our hope. We are not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Paul describes this hope earlier in Colossians chapter 1 verse 5 as the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 through 4 describes it as a living hope, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What is our hope? It is the confidence and the expectation that one day Jesus will present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We all know the chapter Hebrews 11, the, the hall of faith. If you we were to turn to that passage and consider the examples of those who lived by enduring, continuing faith, we learn in verses 35 through 38 that some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dents and caves of earth. How could people endure such things? Because they were confident in the hope of the gospel. As Hebrews 11 describes them as those who saw the promises and they greeted them from afar and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For if people who speak thus make it clear, they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking about that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They remain stable and steadfast, even under immense persecution." But what gets you to shift from the hope of the gospel? How strong does an influence have to be in order for you to second-guess the gospel? Forget torture and imprisonment for a moment. What about that simple suggestion whispered in your ear, what if you just added this to your faith? Is that enough to make you waver? Or the winsome and wise personality or spiritual guru who compels you to place all your hope in their program or teaching, is that enough to make you shift from the hope of the gospel? Most often that shift is subtle and unnoticeable in our lives. So how do we continue to stay stable and steadfast in the gospel? How do we we stand firm and not shift from it? Will, in part, by remembering it, by looking to the hope, by remembering our former hostility, remembering his work of reconciliation, and remembering his purpose for us—that he will present us wholly blameless and above reproach one day—continue in the stability of gospel hope. And secondly, he calls us to continue in the sufficiency of the gospel message. A continuation in the gospel depends not only in a confidence in the hope that it provides but a confidence in the sufficiency of its message. In other words, I have the gospel. I don't need anything else. I have Christ. It's taking taking care of my past. It's taking care of my present. It's taking care of my future. Look at the last half of verse 23. We are are called to not shift from the hope of the gospel, which you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And as one final reminder to continue in the gospel, Paul hints at the gospel's sufficiency. He says, this is the gospel. That has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. If you were to look back in Colossians chapter 1 verse 6. He describes the gospel as that which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. And since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Why does Paul mention for a second time the widespread reach of the gospel message? I think to remind them that by turning from the gospel, they're not just rejecting some obscure offshoot religion. They are rejecting the one sufficient message of salvation in all of the universe. That this message is reaching all creation, that Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. And we saw in verse 20, he's doing this through the gospel that you have heard and received. And so to shift from the gospel is to shift from, as one author puts it, the universal answer to the quest for spiritual fulfillment. Yet these false teachers are coming in and saying, hey, here's you want to go on a quest for spiritual fulfillment? Let me show you my secrets. Let me show you what I found to be fulfilling. And Paul says, no, this is the gospel that has been preached under all of heaven. It is sufficient. It is all you need. There's no doubt that there will come times in our life, in our personal life, and in the life of our church where we'll be faced with other philosophies, with other ideas, with other worldviews that seek to rob us from the simplicity of the gospel to say, here, here's this, here's this secret knowledge, here's this added regulation that will really give you the spiritual fulfillment that you're looking for. And Paul, in gracious and remarkable words, reminds them, you don't need that. Because Christ, the one who is over everything, the preeminent one, the one who is reconciling all things to himself, has already reconciled you. You are dead in your sins. You were alienated from him. You were hostile in your mind. You were doing evil deeds. And he brought you close through the blood of the cross. And one day he's going to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And if that's true, you don't need anything else. And if you're here and you're thinking, I don't think I have this gospel, I think I am still alienated. I'm still hostile in my mind. I heard it phrased this way by someone, you know, to the question, how do I know which God is the true God? The answer is the one you hate. That we, in our minds and in our hearts, have a natural hostility toward our creator. And there's nothing we can do to fix that hostility. We cannot climb our way to God. Christ reconciles us through the blood of the cross. And I just want to let you know that if you haven't accepted that, it is a free gift. He does the work. He offers the gift. And if you come to him and say, Lord Jesus, I want you to save me. I repent of my sins and I come to you in repentance and faith. I want you to be my savior. He says, those who come to me, I will not cast out. But I will nail your sins to the cross. I will remember your wicked deeds no more, and you will walk in newness of life. That's a promise to you. And you're in a room full of people that have experienced that, that have experienced that reconciliation, and they know the joy and the hope that comes from knowing that one day, despite all of their sins, and all of their wickedness, and all of their evil deeds, that Christ will present them holy, and blameless, and above reproach before the Father someday. And that's the hope that we have. And we want the hope for you. Christian, Christian, don't waver from the gospel. Why would you? Isn't the gospel great? <laughs> it's the most wonderful news you can ever hear, and we need nothing else. Stand firm in the gospel, continue in the gospel, and never forget it. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would never allow us to get over how profound yet how simple this incredible message of salvation is. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that has not yet come to faith and knowledge of you, that even today they might call on you for salvation, that they might come to you in faith, that you might save them and reconcile them to yourself. Help us, Lord, as your people, whom you have reconciled, that we would not shift from the hope of the gospel. Keep us stable and steadfast. Don't allow us to be swayed and deceived by the world around us. Keep us firm in your truth so that we might live for you faithfully. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Can we stand together as our closing song, song of invitation, a a good selection here, the gospel song, a simple song, uh, one enjoyed by young children and adults alike, and it lays out for us the simple truth of the gospel. If you don't know Christ this morning, this gospel song is a witness to you. And for Christians, this gospel song reminds us of the truth that has changed everything. Let's sing this together as we close. That's a simple gospel. Remember it and continue in it. Let me close in prayer before we dismiss. Lord, again, we thank you for the gospel. I pray that you'd help us to go forth with that gospel in mind. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Don't forget, if you are staying for one of the deacon lunches, that's down in the fellowship hall. Otherwise, we hope to see you tonight. Have a wonderful week.